I'm going to pray for us, and then we will dive in to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. We're actually going to spend uh, time not just in verses 6 and 7, which are the, the verses you probably remember uh, well, uh, but we'll, we'll actually look through the, the whole first part of chapter 9 and uh, maybe even a little chapter 8. So I'll pray for us and we'll, we'll dive in. Lord, we thank you for this time of year when we remember your coming to earth as a baby, as a gift to us. as your son who would one day die for our sins on the cross and rise again. We thank you for that good news, what that means for us today. Lord, help us to go back in time to the time of Isaiah and see what was going on then and really understand what it meant when Isaiah prophesied about your coming. So guide my words, and I pray that... um, I pray that my words and our time together would be uh, glorifying to you in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, turn in your Bibles to uh, Isaiah 9, and I'm going to read the main part of, uh, our, of the chapter here uh, initially. So that would be verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So uh, the last time I gave the message uh, on a a Sunday morning, the subject was actually John the Baptist. You may remember that. That was probably a month or two ago. Um, And I actually quoted these verses from Isaiah during that message, right? So it's actually apropos that I'm now speaking on uh, these verses specifically. Uh, But it was in relation to Uh, the prophecies of a future messenger, if you recall, right? There was this messenger who would be a harbinger of the coming Messiah King, uh, who we know, of course, ultimately was John the Baptist uh, in Matthew. And so uh, coming back to this, I think, again, it's quite fitting uh, as we shift from the messenger to the king himself. So a little background on Isaiah. uh, it's It's a big book. He's kind of a lion figure in the Old Testament, so a little, but a little background on Isaiah for, for those who, don't, uh, who aren't as familiar with, with who he was. So uh, Isaiah was a prophet, as you know, uh, in Judah uh, between the middle of the 8th, cent- 8th century B.C. and the early 7th century B.C., okay? So we're talking 700-ish years before uh, Jesus arrives on the scene. Uh, The book of Isaiah was probably written over the course of his lifetime, uh, and a lot happens during this time. So there's a few key points I want to just put out there about what's going on in Israel uh, during the time of chapter 9 specifically, okay? So we're about 250 years removed from David's reign, okay? So uh, David's reign was 900-something B.C. Uh, We're now in 700-something B.C., 
Um, and of course, we remember from David's reign in our time in Samuel earlier this year, we remember God making a covenant that an ideal leader for Israel would come through the line of David and the nation would be a blessing to the entire world. And this was all well and good, but things start going sideways almost immediately. David has his sin with Bathsheba, and it seems to infect the entire family. So we get power struggles to be the next king. Within two generations, Israel is divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And we have kings in, in both kingdoms that reign, and the kings aren't great. In fact, they're, they're almost all really, really bad, <laughs> okay? This is not the kingdom. This doesn't seem to be the kingdom or the, the, the kingdom that was prophesied in the, uh, in the covenant. We, do them, we see all of these kings doing all sorts of really bad things in the sight of the Lord. We also see during this time in Isaiah that the brutal Assyrian empire is breathing down the necks of Israel. They're right on the northern border. They've, they're kind of in the east and sort of northern parts of, of the Israel uh, border. And we know that ultimately the northern kingdom, kingdom falls to the Assyrian empire during, during Isaiah's lifetime, okay? But at this point in chapter 9, uh, they're, just, they're just a growing threat. And everybody's freaking out in Israel. Darkness is seeping in. Many in Israel also during this time no longer put their trust in Yahweh. Not just the kings, but the people as well. The nation was filled with ungodliness and unrighteousness. They sought foreign gods and began following pagan practices of other nations. This is leading them further into God's judgment. And we see God will fully judge them when Assyria fully takes over. But through the midst of these failures, God's promise of a future Messiah King, it didn't go away. The promise of the Messiah King through the line of David did not go away. Does God fail to deliver on his promises ever? No, never. It didn't go away. But how could this be? Put yourself in the, in the mind of, of, a, of an Israelite, of, of a uh, member of, the, of, the, of a Jewish person during this time in Israel. Put your, put your mind there. What must they be thinking? They have these promises, but things are not going well. They're going so not well that they're turning to other gods. It's darkness. It's creeping in. So this brings us to our, our chapter 9 of, of Isaiah, places us there. So think about this, think about these words from Isaiah from the perspective of someone who was living during that time in Israel. So our verse 6 here starts, for unto us a child is born. Well, we can't start there. Whenever you have for, the word for at the start of something, it's there for a reason, right? It means... We really have to go back. It's leading us to something from something else, right? So let's go back to, we'll go to the start of the chapter. Chapter 9, verse 1. Verse 1 starts, 
Nevertheless, the gloom, some of your translations might say, but, well, we can't start there. That's an adverb. Nevertheless, it's an adverb. It links a prior statement to something prior, right? Linking what's about to be said to a prior statement. So we can't start with chapter, or chapter 9, verse 1. We really have to go back to chapter 8. So let's do that. Go back in your Bible a little further. And let's start in uh, verses 17 and 18 of, of chapter 8. So here at the end of chapter 8, we see Isaiah calling himself and his family, he's got a wife and kids, calling himself and his family a remnant of Yahweh's followers who continue to put their hope in him. That means there's not a lot of them, right? But Isaiah calls himself a remnant. So here he says in verse 17, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. We are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. So Israel, or Isaiah juxtaposes himself with the hopeless followers of paganism that have risen in Israel in verses 19 through 22, which we'll read here in a minute. Again, these people are living in fear of pending doom from Assyria. And they're so far from Yahweh that here we read that they wish to consult the dead for their worries rather than God's word. Verse 19, and when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek the, their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Oof. This is not the typical beginning of a Christmas message, is it? But we have to start there. We have to start with the darkness. Without the darkness, there's no light. Isaiah offers hope. There's hope starting in chapter 9. It brings us to our word, nevertheless, or but. Verse 1 of chapter 9 says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed. As when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her. So just stopping there, we see that Isaiah is saying the present gloom will be lifted. He specifically mentions these two towns, these two obscure towns, Zebulun and Naphtali. If you looked at a map where these towns were during that time, they're really, they're up in that northern part of Israel, those borderlands between Israel and Assyria. Those towns were being harassed by the Assyrians at this point. These towns will ultimately, Isaiah is saying, 
ultimately will be the first to see how God will redeem his people. The hope will start there. He continues uh, in verse one and following into verse two. By the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, in Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell, dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. These towns on the fringes of the promised land will be the first to witness a great light that will cut through the darkness. And what will this great light be like? We read about it in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. This great light will increase the joy of the nation. It'll be like the, a bountiful harvest and a great military victory all wrapped in one. But how will this be done? He goes on, verse four. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. Verse five, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. God will win the victory. He will win the victory over human oppression like a great freedom fighter. It will be like the day in Midian. If you remember Midian, that was the uh, time in Judges, go back to uh, Judges, when the Midianites were oppressing Israel. And if you remember the story, uh, it was Gideon who achieved a miraculous victory. You remember this? He had thousands and thousands of troops and he thought he was going to go into battle with all these troops against the Midianites. But what does God say? No, no, no. Less, less, less. He keeps whittling down the troops. And what, do they end, what do they end with? 300. 300 men to take on this multiple thousand men Midianite army. And God achieves the victory. All through the power of God. He did it to show that God can do anything. Not through the hands of men, but he can do it despite ourselves. So in summary, we read that there's present darkness through God's judgment over Israel, who is largely rejecting God's rule over them. They're under threat by the Assyrians, a pagan nation, a brutal pagan nation. But Isaiah prophesies of a lifting of the gloom and a redemption of God's people. Again, imagine yourself living in this time and feeling hopeless but hearing these words from Isaiah. Isaiah prophesies of a lifting of the gloom and a redemption. He prophesies also of a great, a great light that will be a joy to the entire nation. The oppression will cease and there will be abundance in the land. So that brings us to our main verses here, six and seven. I'll read them again. 
For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Wow, what a prophecy. What an unexpected prophecy. Coming at such a time as this, where things are looking doom and gloom, we see this hope. But how unexpected is this? How is this prophecy being fulfilled? It's through the gift of a child? A child. Well, that's unexpected. A helpless child. What is God doing here? Once again, he continues to overturn our expectations. Once again, God shows his power through the unexpected. What the world sees as weak, God will show to be strong. What the world sees as foolishness, God will prove to be wise. And here, God's Son will overcome all evil and darkness. The Son will be the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant. And we see a list of names here given to this child king. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You probably have them capitalized in your book, in your Bible. These are, these are divine names for this child king. Wonderful Counselor. This is not a lay on the couch and tell me your feelings kind of counselor. This is a counselor here that is someone who makes wise plans, like an advisor. Wonderful, referring to supernatural abilities, divine abilities. This king will rule with wisdom that is beyond human capabilities. His plan of action will be infallibly, wonderfully right. But can he actually carry out these plans, this child, child king? Yes, because he's mighty God. What does mighty God mean? It's the title of Yahweh himself. It's actually used earlier in the Old Testament to refer to Yahweh. So this is not just a human king, but a divine one with the power to act as God himself. He would be omnipotent. Not only, so not only is he wise to have all the right answers as a counselor, but he has the power to carry out those plans into fruition. But will his plans be helpful for us? Will they be for our good? Yes. Why? Because he's the everlasting father. Just as a benevolent father protects and provides for his children, so the king will protect and provide for his subjects like a good father.
And unlike human fathers who pass away and fail, often, even when they're alive, (laughs) this father will live and protect eternally. A loving earthly father knows what's best for his children. How much more so for a loving divine father? But will there be turmoil as his enemies fight against his plans? No. He's also the Prince of Peace. This is peace to its fullest extent. He will destroy evil and death. Peace here is not just a lack of of warfare. It's it's much more than that. It's, It's a much broader term here. It's really a sense of wholeness, stability, tranquility, and prosperity. This is the eternal plan. So we can sum it up by saying this king is all-knowing and all-powerful to carry out his rule and will do so with love and care to bring about peace and prosperity. What good news? This is good news for us on Christmas. We also see in this prophecy what will mark his rule and reign. Government will increase and never end. This king will not rule just Israel. This king will rule the entire world forever. Israel was promised to be the nation that would bless other nations, but this takes it to a whole other level. Not only will this king of Israel rule Israel, but he will rule all nations and be a blessing. We have a government, too, here of judgment and justice. All of the wrongs will be made right. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The final victory over evil, sin, darkness, and death will be accomplished by the intensity and fervor that only comes from God, who commands his angels. So who is this person? Who is this child? Remember, You're in Israel, this time of Isaiah, longing for hope. And Isaiah gives it it to you. But they don't get to see it in their lifetime. 700 years more. Many, many, many generations more go by. Nothing. The prophecies eventually end. We talked about that when we were talking about John the Baptist about 400 years before Jesus shows up, things get darker. Israel goes into exile. They're a conquered nation. Yes, they return back to their homeland, rebuild the temple, but they're still under a conquered nation, still a conquered nation. They're still under the authority of other kings. Eventually here in first century Israel, they're under Roman rule. So who is this person? Who is this future Messiah? We read in Matthew that right after Jesus was tempted by Satan, where does he begin his ministry? 
chapter 4 of Matthew, verses 12 through 16. I'll read them. Again, this is right after Jesus' temptation by Satan. He's about to start his earthly ministry. We read, Now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. Here Matthew, Matthew quotes directly our passage in chapter 9 of Isaiah. And we see here that he starts his ministry in Galilee right where the darkness was most prevalent in the time of Isaiah. Of course he did. Jesus is the one prophesied. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Jesus is the mighty God. Jesus is the everlasting father. Jesus is the prince of peace. He died for our sins and conquered death by rising from the grave. But he's not done. One day he will return and bring his victory over sin, death, and darkness to full realization. One day the peace will be eternal. Do you know that, church? Like many of you, my family puts a nativity scene on the mantle of our fireplace every year in December, right? It's a tradition. It's cozy. Looks nice with a few lights illuminating the characters. But it's much more than that. Don't look past it. It's a proclamation that the king has arrived as a gift for you. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Do you look around our city and only see darkness? A son is given. Do you look around the world with an unsettled feeling of pending doom? We see wars. We see rumors of wars. We see Israel continuing to get hassled by its neighbors. Things never change in that sense, do they? A son is given. Are you feeling weak? Are you feeling alone? Are you struggling with sin? Are you anxious, depressed? A son is given. And the zeal of the Lord will accomplish, accomplish this. No matter what our condition, God has promised to cut through that present darkness with the light of light. 
This is God's passion. For God so loved the world that he gave us his son. This is a gift. Israel didn't earn it. We didn't earn it. It was freely given. And it doesn't stop there. God will never stop loving you. He will never stop until his promises are fully fulfilled. So as we reach the crescendo here of Christmas season, about a week away or so, and as we give and receive gifts, I'm sure many of you, all of you, will give something and receive something. Uh, let's all remember the greatest gift that was ever given. I'll pray for us. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word and see the hope see the hope through the darkness the world sometimes seems hopeless sometimes our, our lives seem hopeless but you cut through like a shining light like a star that it was in the sky that guided the Magi to your birth. Like the light of the angels that came to the shepherds that night. You cut through the darkness in an unexpected way. And we're so thankful for that. Lord, I pray that as we go through the coming week, as we sing the songs and share the gifts, eat the cookies, that we remember your birth, we remember your gift that no darkness can, can hide from the light of what you give. You cut through it all. You are the hope. So I pray that you would give hope to the hopeless peace to those in strife, and comfort to those afflicted during this time. In Jesus' name, amen.